0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, March 6th, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. The International Criminal Court is now in Ukraine investigating whether or not Russia has committed war crimes as hundreds of thousands of civilians flee.
1: You know, the people we speak to say we just picked up whatever we can get in a few bags and we made a literal run for the border. And we left behind so much of our life, including members of our own family.
0: And primary season has begun ahead of this year's midterms. The first state to vote, Texas. And while some fall matchups are set, some candidates are headed to runoffs.
2: The big dividing line in this runoff between Paxton and Bush is going to be over ethics and and, and the Mm. ethical issues that the sitting attorney general is facing still. Uh, and, And it's not partisan.
0: I'm Jessica Rosenthal on the Fox News Rundown from Washington. The International Criminal Court is in Ukraine investigating whether Russia has engaged in war crimes. The chief prosecutor said he did not need clearance from The Hague for this after 39 countries, more than enough, referred the matter to the ICC. Britain's foreign minister and U.S. officials have posited that Russia is indiscriminately targeting civilians. Ukraine's foreign minister Dmitry Kuleba says unspeakable things are happening to Ukraine's civilians.
1: The question is now how the international community will handle it. We are fighting against the enemy who is much stronger than us but the international law is on our side and hopefully it will help us uh, it will make its own contribution to help us prevail
0: dr patricia lewis is the director of the international security program at chatham house and explains that some of the weapons suspected of being used include cluster munitions and large thermobaric weapons which she says results in fine particles of carbon and metal exploding and does terrible things to people's bodies Uh, So it's it's a real, um, very nasty weapon to be anywhere near civilians. The ICC's investigation will apparently go back as far as 2013, when Ukraine's president at that time rejected having closer ties to the West and the EU. In the end, though, what is happening to civilians on the ground in Ukraine is critical in such an investigation. Fox Business Correspondent Connell McShane is in Pesemish, Poland, on Ukraine's border.
1: Well, I spoke to a family just a short time ago um, that really made me stop and think about what's happening on the other side of this border. The young woman, 23 years old, was traveling from... Ukraine into Poland with her grandmother and her mother, so it was three women. They're originally from Kharkiv, which is, you probably have heard, is an area in Ukraine that has been hit very, very hard in the fighting over the last number of days, and it was being hit hard before they left, so hard that some civilian infrastructure, I think is the best way to describe it, a building near the building that they live in, is what she told me, was almost completely destroyed. And when that happened, just across the street from where they lived, they knew they had to get out of town, so they did. But they traveled to the capital city of Kiev, and things got even worse. Because when they were literally at the train station, tr- crowded train station in Kiev, the Russian bombs started falling again. Very close to the station so much so that they could see it They looked outside the station waiting for a train to arrive and they could see here and feel the bombs falling They were scared out of their minds as they told me that they were so scared But they finally got on a train and three days later. That's why you're only hearing about the story now. They got here to Poland. The trip was three days, through Lviv, through the western part of the country, and finally into Poland. So that's probably the best example, anecdotally, that we can tell you that would illustrate the point of civilian targets and the effect it is having on these people, because we could still see the horror in this young girl's face, college-aged girl, 23 years old, uh, speaking to us in perfect English while her mother and her, her grandmother looked on, still so scared about what had happened, not only at home in Kharkiv, but also at that train, train station in, in Kiev.
0: Conal, to that point, I, I do imagine you're seeing quite, quite a few women, maybe children. Um, our understanding, of course, at this point is that the men have been told to stay behind, right? Um, or most of them between the ages of 18 and 60. So is, is that sort of the demographic you're really seeing?
1: Among Ukrainian nationals, it's almost exclusively the demographic that we're seeing is um, usually young mothers with young children. And, of course, uh, you'll see some people traveling with their own mothers. So you will see some older uh, women as well. Although I have to say that we've heard a number of times people coming in, you know, it might be a girl in their 20s or 30s. And they'll say that my own mother or grandmother, she was either too elderly um to leave or didn't want to leave. That was her home country and she was staying. And they're so worried. You can hear about, they're happy that they've been able to cross the border and get to a place where they feel safer. But immediately when you ask them a question, they start thinking about the people that they've left behind. And that's where you see where Uh, From a human perspective at least this war is having such an impact on people. Yeah They've been able to get out, but what have they what have they been able to get out with just the bags? They're carrying you know the people we speak to say we just picked up whatever we can get in a few bags And we made a literal run for the border and we left behind so much of our life Including members of our own family. It's their father. It's their brother It's their son and sometimes it's their elderly parents that are still back in Um, different cities in Ukraine that are in a much worse humanitarian state than anything we're seeing here close to the border with Poland. So it's just that worry and the dread in their face that once you get to that part of the conversation there's almost a pause and people have difficulty relaying those stories to us. We've seen a lot of emotion, raw emotion from people who have just gotten off a long car, bus or or train ride here into Poland.
0: Uh, Connell, we've seen video and pictures. Um, it looks like at least along the Polish border, the the international groups, the volunteers, really have quite an outreach effort. I mean, what are you seeing in terms of the supplies, in terms of the food, the baby food, the everything that that that's being offered? Is is it quite the spread? as we've seen on on television?
1: Yeah, it's overwhelming in some ways to see how people have come together to try to help out in any way they can. I mean, I think there are organizational and logistical challenges right now in terms of getting everything uh, to where it needs to be. But there's no shortage of good people trying to do good deeds. I mean, we've seen that all along this border and to in every location that we've been. I mean, we're at a train station today where if you walk up to the train station, you'll literally see cases and cases of bottled water. You'll see clothes thrown in piles, just people bringing down extra blankets or jackets that they might have at home. There's a whole row of baby strollers that people have donated so that if someone who gets off the train needs a baby stroller, it's there and waiting for them. And when I say there are logistical challenges associated with that, many times these are not organizations uh, or large uh, structural groups that have put together these um, supplies and are making sure that they're funneled into the right places. many cases, just a family in Poland who hears that the train station is busy and they're coming over to the train station with a baby a stroller or a case of water and they're leaving it there. And, you know, so far, at least from what we can tell, it is getting in the right hands. I mean, there are volunteers from, I would say it's not an exaggeration, all over the world here trying to help out with this. And we've met people from all over Europe. A man from Germany yesterday who was driving a bus of uh, supplies into this area. Once the supplies are unloaded, load up the bus with people and free of charge for Ukrainian nationals at least take them back uh, to Germany. Met a man from Orlando, Florida in the United States uh, just a short time ago. Today's with a, a church group that have come over here to just help out, volunteer any way they can around the border with Poland and Ukraine. Again, with supplies and with just helping people to get uh, to where they need to go. So all of that is going, I think, about as... As best as you can expect. But there's so many challenges ahead here for this entire continent. You think about a million people in one week leaving a country. If things don't get better soon, and most people don't think they will in Ukraine, the number's going to multiply. And it's not going to go up by the tens or hundreds of thousands. It's going to go up by the, the millions. And that is a lot for Europe to take on because as much as is being done right now, and a lot is For the Ukrainians who are fleeing the war, there are so many other people involved in this that maybe are not spoken about as much, but also add to the challenge. There were a lot of people in Ukraine living there or going to school there that are not originally from Ukraine. Mm. We just met a group of uh, university students, medical students, as a matter of fact, uh, originally from Egypt who were going to school in Kyiv. They were two months away from graduating, would have had their degree on their way to be doctors. The war breaks out and they had to run away from their medical school, get on a train for three days. They end up in a country they'd never been, here in Poland, don't know exactly what to do next. They've somehow arranged a trip to Germany and they don't know what they're going to do exactly when they get there. But it speaks to kind of two sides of it, the humanitarian side. You, You look at this medical student, And you feel for what he's going through, you could see... What you can literally see physically what he 's gone through, he said on the train ride in he didn 't sit down there was no seat he was this a guy I mean a young guy looks like he 's in pretty good shape, but he was standing for three days, so he physically was affected by this, and obviously mentally and emotionally he is, but then the bigger picture, you know that that adds to the larger narrative of what the continent of Europe has to deal with is that all of these people moving across borders is a just a giant challenge. And it's going to be a cultural, economic, you name it, uh, challenge for many countries in Europe, not just the ones that border Ukraine. It's much bigger than that.
0: Connell, where do these people tell you they plan to go from there? To your point, you were saying like bus rides to Germany, etc. Like, has anyone expressed confusion about their next steps? Do they, do they have to set up a, a, a new life it, wherever they're going? And where are people going?
1: Well, I think there's two answers to that. Is that in their minds, for the most part, um, the new life conversation is not one they're willing to have. Maybe they're just not, they just don't want to go there. Yeah. I, I don't know, quite frankly. But if you ask someone, um, "Will you be going back to Ukraine?" it's it's a hundred percent. I mean, there's, there's really, literally, been no one who hasn't said this. They every single person we've spoken to says, "Yeah, I'm going to be going back," and they usually then take a pause and add, "When we, meaning Ukraine." win the war. There's so much national pride in their country and they don't seem to speak with or let themselves have any doubt. So that's kind of the mindset they go in with. Now, Then there's the practical side of it. So from a practical perspective, yeah, we've run into some people who have no idea where they're going after they get here. And what's happening is you have a group. I mean, there are a lot of Ukrainian people who live in Poland to begin with. So you have a lot of people come in across the border and they have a family member or friend and they have a place to stay. Then you have a second group where they've been through these volunteer organizations that we see or just people in Poland that are on Facebook or or somewhere else. Uh, they've organized a place for them to stay. So, you know, we've heard stories, for example, of a family in Krakow that says, yeah, I'm willing to take in a group of refugees. It's posted on Facebook. The group of refugees who they've never met in their life come in. Those people are connected. And the next day they're staying, uh, you know, on a mattress in their basement, and they're told that they can stay as long as they want. I mean, that's the type of generosity that we see. And then the third group is this group that doesn't know what they're going to do next. And again, I think the point has to be made for Ukrainian nationals. There are there's a lot being done. Understandably, there's so much feeling for what their country is going through. But for the people who are not Ukrainian nationals, uh, that's the tougher group because they come in students. There was a woman from Nigeria, young girl, college student again, comes in. She's not really sure she got here to Poland. She was just all she could think about was getting rid of the war in the country where she was a college student. But her next stop, she told me she has no idea. And I really don't know what she did after she left. So there is a Little bit of all of that going on, even with so much of the the generosity that we see from people here in Poland and in other countries in Europe.
0: Do we know anything about what the US is doing to help? Like I know USAID's on the ground and other US volunteers are there, but in terms of travel and logistics, are we accepting Ukrainians with like certain documentation who maybe have family in the States? Like what's the guidance for anybody who says, I want to go to the US?
1: Yeah, I you know we've been so focused on what we're doing here on the ground that we haven't focused as much on those issues. But I can tell you that I know um, that there were some comments yesterday from the U.S. government that they were going to be willing, and this came after uh, we heard from the European Union in similar fashion that they were going to be willing to take in uh, Ukrainian refugees. Uh, we have not spoken to anybody here that is going over there. In other words, that's going to the United States. Uh, we've heard from many people who are leaving. Poland. So, for example, from a, if you look at the numbers, there are more than 1.2 million refugees in total that have left Ukraine now in a little over a week. Poland has taken in a huge number, about 700,000 of the 1.2 million. But all of those people will not be staying here. So we've spoken to people already on buses to Germany, Italy, Czech Republic, a number of countries across Europe. From the U.S. point of view, all I can say is the comments that I saw last night. Um, from the government. And that was from Secretary Mayorkas, I believe, saying that there will be temporary protected status for 18 months. So for mm-hmm. a year and a half from the Department of Homeland Security for Ukrainian um, citizens who are fleeing the war. So they're willing to offer temporary protected status for 18 months in the United States. But so far, we haven't met anyone who's, who's taking advantage of that. It's, it's been a, a European story from where we are.
0: Fox Business Correspondent Connell McShane on the Polish border of Ukraine. Thank you so much for your time and for your work. Stay safe.
1: Okay, Jess, thanks so much. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across
2: America. Download from the kitchen table the Duffys at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.
0: Last week, Texas held the first primaries ahead of fall midterms. Some races were not difficult contests. Republican Governor Greg Abbott avoided a runoff pretty easily, despite some challengers who analysts say pushed him to the right.
2: Republicans sent a message. They want to keep Texas the land of opportunity and prosperity for absolutely everybody, the prosperity that we have delivered over the past eight years.
0: His fall challenger, Democrat and former Congressman Beto O'Rourke, had an even easier primary.
2: What I need to do with Abbott is make sure that you know exactly how badly he's failed you. Your electricity bills, which are up 40 to 60 bucks a month over the same time last year and will continue to go up over the next 20 years. That's on him. That's the Abbott tax.
0: Last winter's grid failure during a winter storm has been a big focus of O'Rourke's campaign. The former head of the Texas Power Grid said he was told by the Public Utility Commission that the governor's office had insisted they should do whatever it took to make sure rotating power outages did not continue, which resulted in higher prices. A spokesperson for Abbott has said he was not involved in any way with the decision to implement higher prices. Josh Krasauer is Fox News Radio's political analyst.
2: He won pretty easily, as expected, against a handful of pretty far-right challengers, most notably Alan West, a former congressman and Texas Republican Party chairman, a former chairman. Uh, But but it goes to show that, uh, number one, the establishment won, and that was highlighted by Abbott's big win. But Abbott has also moved... To the right as governor as he's gotten pressure from some of these very right-wing candidates so yes it was a big win for the establishment and the governor but also the parties the more establishment part of the party is somewhat merging with the trump wing the right wing grassroots of the party so abbott has uh, good reason to be uh, happy about his chances of winning another term uh, running against Beto O'Rourke in the in the governor's race in the general election, but there are some yeah. reasons to think he's had to move right to accommodate the the loud grassroots element of his party.
0: Yeah, I want to ask more about that because over the past year, Abbott signed new voting legislation, a new abortion law, a new gun law that allows for permitless carry for most people. Was was he pushed by West and and Don Huffines, the other challenger, or was he sort of already on that track?
2: he was absolutely pushed. He, <laughs> Democ- That's the great thing about democracy, or, or the bad thing in some people's minds, that voters have a say in how their elected officials govern. And you also saw the, uh, Abbott taking a lead role in, in, in criticizing transgender issues, transgender rights, uh, just a day before the, the primary election, because it's become a galvanizing issue among many conservative Republican voters. Uh, so uh, abortion... Uh, the culture wars, more 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 broadly, education, uh, the, those are going to be issues that Abbott isn't just going to be talking about in the primary, but it's going to be a, a, an issue that he'll he'll lead into in in the general against Beto O'Rourke.
0: Talk to me more about Beto O'Rourke. He faced Ted Cruz, um, gave him a heck of a run for his Senate seat. He lost um, this time around. He basically had no no real challenger. Um, what kind of shot do you think he has against Abbott as Texas maybe shifts a bit in terms of demographics?
2: Slim to none. This is not 2018 (laughs) anymore. And that is the biggest takeaway from all, all these election results. Republican turnout, much higher. Democratic turnout, is pretty stable, but, but there's not the same degree of enthusiasm for Democrats in Texas as there was four years ago when President Trump was still in office. Beto O'Rourke in 2018 ran as the anti-Trump, the anti-Ted Cruz. He, he was the vehicle for all that anti-Cruz sentiment within the Texas electorate. And and keep in mind, in 2018, there were still some conservative Republicans who were a little annoyed with Ted Cruz for not supporting Trump right away uh, in the 2016 nomination Mm. fight. So that was a perfect storm for Democrats, and they still couldn't get over the finish line. Beto still wasn't able to come up with a victory. He then ran for president did very poorly and and moved far to the left on a whole bunch of issues, guns in particular, that that's causing him problems in this election. And now he's facing a big Republican and uh, wave potential of a wave election uh, at at a time when he's his brand has has suffered. He's moved to the left and he's facing a a fairly popular uh, incumbent Republican governor.
0: Talk to me about the attorney general's race. Uh, Ken Paxton is the incumbent there. You you predicted he'd face a runoff, and he will. He did not clear that 50% threshold that he needed. Uh, he has some legal challenges he's dealing with, namely being accused of uh, securities fraud. Who is his challenger? And, and in the fall, does the, the Democrat, Rochelle Garza, I guess she's an ACLU attorney, does she have a real shot at that seat?
2: So first on the Republican side, we've got a proxy war of sorts between the Trump wing of the party, Trump endorsed Attorney General Ken Paxton, versus the Bush wing of of the party and Jeb Bush's Mm. son, uh, Land Commissioner George P. Bush. Now, it's interesting, Jess, that all the Republicans running in that race, none of them had anything sour to say about President Trump. I mean, they, they all were running on similar messages. The big dividing line in this runoff between Paxton and Bush is, is going to be over ethics and, and, and the mm. ethical issues that the sitting attorney general is facing still. Uh, and, and it's not partisan. These are these are some serious issues that he's had to uh, almost throw red meat to the conservative base for them to overlook his, his ethical challenges. Uh, that's what Bush is going to be running on. Trump is, is likely going to be weighing in on behalf of, of Paxton. He, he sees this is an opportunity to cement his influence in, in, in the party to p- defeat another Bush by proxy. The interesting number in that in that primary, though, Jess, is that Paxton only got about 43% of the vote, 42, 43% of the vote. Yep. There is an opportunity for Bush to uh, consolidate the opposition to Paxton and literally not make this about ideology or partisanship, but make it about ethics. And I think that Bush, Bush still has a fighting chance, though. Though Paxton has to be considered the favorite, given the Trump support in this race.
0: Let's talk about some House races. Is the 15th district going to flip to Republican? Vicente Gonzalez won that seat in 2016 and 2018 by like 20 points, but he only won it by two points in 2020. He's going to go off and fight, I guess, in another district due to redistricting. This area has shifted. But his challenger in 2020, Monica Hernandez de la Cruz, she won her primary this time around as well. Does she have a real shot? And if if so, why?
2: Yeah, this is one of the best pickup opportunities for Republicans in, in the House. It's an open seat. Vicente Gonzalez decided to run in a neighboring district that's a little more Democratic friendly. Uh, it, the border districts. Of the to the Texas-Mexico border, mm-hmm. have swung more towards Republicans than almost any other region in the country. Mm-hmm. We saw that in the last election, and you're seeing that in the results from the primaries in Texas, where Republican turnout was up up significantly in many of these border counties. Uh, this is a, a seat where Monica De la Cruz, the Republican nominee, won easily her primary. She's not going to have to face a runoff. She's one of the star recruits that Republicans are touting. Uh, She's obviously Hispanic. She has a conservative record. She's tough on, on illegal immigration, on border security. Uh, she, she starts out, I, I would say, as a slight favorite in, in yeah. this district, even though it is a battleground seat. The Democrats still have a runoff, and uh, one of the candidates in that runoff is a very progressive uh, activist, Michelle Vallejo. Well, she may not be the nominee ultimately, but you're still seeing these divisions in the Democratic Party between the moderates and the progressives. Yeah. And that's only going to hurt their chances as they try to hold on to this uh, pretty pretty competitive seat in November.
0: We can't talk about Texas and ignore Henry Cuellar's seat. Um, I guess he's the last pro-life Democrat in the House. He recently had his home and office raided by the FBI, but he has not been charged with anything. His challenger, Jessica Cisneros, she did well in this race. She was backed by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others. If she wins, does this seat... Possibly end up going to, to a Republican, or or is the Democratic support there in this district?
2: Pick your poison. The Democrats mm. have a choice in a runoff in May between a congressman who's under federal investigation, or an AOC Elizabeth Warren endorsed Medicare for All proponent who is well to the left on immigration in particular in, the, in this very important moderate minded district. Uh, Republicans got uh, they have. Cassie Garcia as the front runner in the runoff, who someone also got legislative experience on Capitol Hill, looks like is the favorite to win that runoff, uh, and, and could get national support after that. This is a classic battleground race. I, you know, if Quayre wins, I think we're going to see a. Uh, a real competition. I, 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 Democrats have got to worry if, if Jessica Cisneros actually wins the runoff. She finished a couple points behind Cuellar in the primary, but someone that progressive in a district that's trending Republican is a surefire way to squander the Democratic advantage in that district. Biden carried it by seven points in mm-hmm. the last election, which is a nice nice little margin, but a lot of those Biden voters are, are much more hawkish on immigration, border security, and don't agree where Cisneros is on, on some of these progressive social positions.
0: Josh, I was reading that as many as 30% of absentee ballots were rejected in, I guess, some of the more populous counties of Texas, and that this was likely due to confusion over the new voting law. Like, do you write down your license? Do you write down your social security number? This is a, this is a problem, No.
2: The Texas was one of the states that that changed voting rules, changed the regulations, and and are applying more scrutiny to, to ballots and whether you you filled your ballot in right or you cast it at the right precinct. So there were a lot more ballots that are disputed, um, absentee ballot. A lot of these are absentee ballots um, that are going through the legal process. So we we're we're. we're, we're not going to change the results. It doesn't look like in any of these, these close races, but it's an issue for the general election. Uh, yeah. A lot of Democrats have been saying, not just in Texas, but across the country, that some of the new rules that were put in place in Republican states, Texas, Georgia, uh, among among others, are going to make it a little more difficult for, for Democrats to get the, the type of turnout, the type of results that they're hoping for. You know, to be candid, I, I don't think this is going to make a big difference. In, in, I think we're talking about you know, a relatively small percentage of voters that are affected by this, but you know, in close races in close battleground seats, that could make the difference. Uh, I'm thinking of that that Texas 28 district where, where mm. we're, we're seeing a you know a showdown in in November, Texas 15. So that is uh, something that has kept Democrats up at night, and, and certainly the fact that so many absentee ballots have been sort of in this purgatory uh, adds to the Democrats' frustration.
0: Finally, Josh. Um... What do we take away from Texas as we head into primary season? We're looking at Ohio and Indiana up next, I think May 3rd. Is Texas just Texas and we don't really need to sort of do any comparisons to the next states? Or And Ohio, I mean, Ohio is its own state in its own right um, with its own issues, including redistricting issues. Do you take anything away from Texas as we move into primary season or is Texas just Texas?
2: It's just one state, but the <laughs> trends, some of the big picture trends are encouraging for Republicans, namely the very high turnout for, for an off, you know, a March primary, uh, especially in those border districts. Uh, that's a, a good sign, given how those same districts are going to be battlegrounds in the November election. Uh, the other thing is the one thing Republicans did as part of the redistricting process is protect their own incumbents over adding the number of competitive seats that they could possibly reach reach into so you're not going to see outside of those those border districts we discussed a whole lot of competitive house races i don't think the governor's race is going to be that competitive it looks like texas for all the talk that it was becoming this purple battleground a suburban uh the suburban areas in the state becoming more democratic we're seeing a backlash to that we're seeing a turnaround where those gains were made by Democrats. But in response, a lot of the Hispanic areas on the border have become a lot more Republican, outweighing or pushing back against some of those other Democratic gains beforehand. So Texas is looking red again. And that means that there are going to be a few few races we're going to keep an eye on, but not to the extent as in other big battleground states.
0: Josh Grassauer, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jess. That will do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. Next week, we'll continue to bring you the latest news regarding the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jessica Rosenthal on the Fox News Rundown from Washington